We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There are probably few statements that are as famous and cherished in our nation as this one from the Declaration of Independence. It was written, of course, to explain why our nation was choosing to assert its freedom from the rule of Great Britain, and it declares that every single man, woman, and child has been given a certain set of rights given to them by God, which no emperor or king or any earthly power can violate. The claim, of course, when this word, these words were written was that Great Britain had violated some of these God-given rights in the American colonies. They had violated that political contract established by God. And so on the basis of that breach of contract, the colonies were electing to declare their independence and reorganize themselves under the government of a new nation. And now, ever since those words were written, this concept has occupied a substantial place in the American psyche. We are a people who believe in individual rights. We are a people who not only believe in individual rights, but who are also willing to fight to defend and exercise those rights. If a cop gives us a ticket that we don't think we deserve, we'll fight it in court. If a business partner deceives us, we'll sue. If a bully punches us on the the playground, we punch back. As a people, that's more or less in our character. If somebody treats us unjustly, if they either intentionally or even inadvertently violate our personal rights, we won't take it lying down. We fight back. In fact, a lot of times we don't even have to be wronged in order to do this. Sometimes we can be the offender. We can be the one in the wrong. We can be the one who's violated someone else's rights. But even then, we'll still try to find some kind of loophole in the contract, some kind of procedural violation in the enforcement of one policy or another, and then we'll try to use that to exonerate ourselves even when in reality we're guilty. This is just who we are. In, a, in the next few months here, the presidential election is going to take center stage. In a sense, it's already taken center stage, but it's going to become even more at the, the, the center of our national conversation. And there's going to be increased debate across our country about public policy, and much of this debate will focus on the exercise of rights. That's the job of the president, presumably, to enforce the laws passed by Congress while upholding the rights that have been established by the U.S. Constitution. And so we'll spend a lot of time discussing who we think is the most qualified to do this, who is most capable of enforcing the law while protecting our rights. And people are going to get angry with one another. They're going to fight with one another. They'll attack each other, make all kinds of insinuations, and call each other names because they can't agree on the proper exercise of their rights. Now again, that's just who we are as a people. We're very passionate about our rights. So that's our culture as Americans. The concept of individual rights and the belief that we should fight for those rights, that's at the very core of our value system. But what about our culture as Christians? Should this be a part of our value system? What does the Bible have to say about how rights should be exercised in the kingdom of heaven? Do we have rights? If so, when do we fight for them? And when, if ever, do we let them go? These are the questions we're going to explore this morning from Matthew 17. 24 to 27. If you haven't already done so, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Once again, that's Matthew 17, 24 to 27. In this passage, Jesus is going to be asked to pay a tax. He's going to be asked to pay a tax that he's not obligated to pay. And in his response, he's going to show us how he approached the issue of individual rights. He sets the tone for us, serves as our example, shows us how we should approach this issue. Let's go ahead and read the passage together. Once again, that's Matthew 17, 24 to 27. Matthew says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, 
What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So once again, Jesus is in Capernaum. He's been in Capernaum quite a bit during his ministry. He's back in Capernaum after being away for a while. And once again, he's presented with a question. A couple of tax collectors come up to to Peter and they ask him, does your teacher not pay the tax? And the question is in reference to this two drachma tax that was collected about a month or so before Passover. It was the equivalent of about two days' wages and it was collected from every Jewish male over the age of 20, both in Palestine and abroad. And it was collected to help maintain the temple. It was a somewhat controversial tax. After all, there wasn't much basis for this tax in Scripture. In Exodus 30, God uh, commanded Israel to take a census and to pay half a shekel for every male as a ransom for his life to the Lord. And that money was to be used for the service of the tent of meeting. So you have that command in Exodus 30, but that was intended to be a one-time collection. It was supposed to happen during the Exodus. It didn't really continue on necessarily after that. In Nehemiah 10, an annual tax was instituted to help maintain the temple, but that was a tax of a third of a shekel, not a half shekel, which is close to what the two drachma tax was. It was a half shekel. Sometime during the second temple period, the Pharisees apparently started a movement to begin collecting this tax on an annual basis, and while it would seem that most Jewish males observed this tax, not all did. The community at Qumran, for instance, only believed that the tax should be paid once in a person's life, not annually. The Sadducees believed it should only be paid voluntarily. And that seems to be the backdrop for this question. The tax collectors want to know, what about Jesus? What does He think? Does He pay it or not? And just to be clear, this doesn't appear to be a hostile question. In other words, we've seen religious leaders attempt to trap Jesus. They'll often try to put him to the test, but that's not what's happening here. The way this question is asked in the Greek, these men expect Peter to say yes. Essentially, essentially they say, Jesus pays the tax, right? That's how they ask this. So this isn't a test. In fact, I tend to think this whole event actually occurs much earlier in Jesus' ministry before the hostility in Galilee really began to escalate. If you recall, Matthew does this quite a bit. While Mark and Luke present Jesus' ministry chronologically, Matthew doesn't do that. He'll move parts around and he'll rearrange events in order to set various events alongside particular themes. And I tend to think that's probably what's going on here. And I say that for a few different reasons. Probably the most significant of which is the fact that this is the true two drachma tax that's being collected. Like I said a minute ago, that's usually collected about a month before Passover. That doesn't fit the the time frame presented by the other gospel writers. If we look at what they have to say, then Jesus has probably um, made this statement about uh, September or October before he died on the cross. It's too early to collect the tax. You combine that with the fact that you have Jesus in Peter's house at Capernaum, that this does not appear to be a hostile question, that the rest of the disciples don't even seem to be in the picture here. After all, Jesus only collects the tax for himself and Peter. And I think what you see is that this is probably a flashback to a Passover that occurred fairly early on in Jesus' ministry, back when he was still staying in Capernaum, before his message was rejected and before he called the twelve to full-time discipleship. In other words, this probably happens at a time when many in Galilee were still receptive to the message that Jesus was preaching, when they were still deciding whether or not to accept His kingdom offer. And that would explain why Jesus is concerned about perception here when He seemed to have given up that concept as early as Matthew 15. So personally, I tend to think that this happened during sunnier days, and Matthew's bringing it forward to fit the themes that are here in this section. It fits the discipleship motif that we're in. It's going to fit the discussion about stumbling blocks that we'll talk about over the next couple of weeks. It's consistent with the back and forth that we've seen take place between Jesus and Peter over the past couple of chapters. But regardless of whether that's happening here or not, whether Matthew's doing that here or not, the point's the same. This isn't a test. 
These tax collectors are not hardened in their heart against Jesus. They're not trying to destroy Him. They just really don't know what He thinks. At the very least, they've heard about Jesus' teaching and things like the Sermon on the Mount. So they're not sure whether Jesus accepts the Pharisees' teaching on the tax or not. They know that already that there's this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And of course, that uncertainty would only be amplified if this is happening after Jesus' confrontations with the religious leaders. point is, they don't know where Jesus stands on the subject, and so they ask Peter, what does he think? What does Jesus think about this? Is he going to pay or not? Peter assumes the answer is yes, which again is probably an indication that this event occurs earlier in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has been correcting that attitude in Peter quite a bit in the past few passages. But Peter assumes this answer. He tells the tax collectors that Jesus does this, and then he goes home, or maybe he just steps inside if this all occurs right outside the house. We don't really know, but he walks inside, and when he gets inside, Jesus greets him with a question. And with his question, Jesus shows Peter that he wasn't exactly right in the answer that he gave. He wasn't necessarily wrong either. He was right in the answer that he gave, but he was apparently wrong in the reasoning for it. He assumed that Jesus would pay the tax because the tax was binding on all Jewish males. Jesus was a Jewish male. He upheld the law, so of course he paid the tax. That's what Peter thought. It would seem that's Peter's reason for saying yes, but that wasn't Jesus' reason for saying yes, that he'd pay the tax. There were some things that Peter misunderstood when he gave this answer. And if he had understood them, then he would have realized that the answer to this question is not as simple as he thought. Truth is, if Peter had understood the issues that were at play in a question like this, if he understood it in the same way that Jesus understood it, then he probably would have stopped and asked Jesus how to answer before answering, because the answer to this question is is more complicated than it seems. And Jesus wants Peter to understand this. So he asks this question. He says, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from their daughters? Or, Or from their sons or from others? And that's a simple question. Kings don't tax their own family members, Right? Princes don't pay taxes. If anything, princes collect taxes. Taxes are used to support the king and his government. So, of course, they don't tax their own family. They don't tax their sons, their daughters. They tax other people, right? Again, this isn't a complicated question, but Jesus wants to make a point by way of analogy. He wants to demonstrate even that Peter should be able to answer this question. He wants to teach Peter how to think through issues like this one. And so he asks this simple question that's going to help Peter reason through how this should have been handled. He says, who do kings collect taxes from? From their sons or from others? And Peter answers. Again, it's a simple question. Peter knows the answer. He says, well, from others. Jesus then responds in verses 26 and 27 by saying, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So Jesus answers this misunderstanding from Peter, and there's basically two parts to his answer. First, there's a correction. And then there's a concession. There's a correction and a concession. The correction comes in verse 26 when Jesus says, then the sons are free. That point is implied rather than explicit. If the sons of earthly kings are not required to pay taxes because the tax system is designed in part to support them, then what about Jesus? Should he be required to pay the temple tax? Now, if this event did happen earlier in Jesus' ministry, you can see at this point why Matthew would want to move it forward to this place in the Gospel. Peter might not have understood why it would be a problem for Jesus to pay the temple tax early on in his ministry, but after he has come to this resolved conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, right, in Matthew 16, and even more than that, after he's witnessed Jesus multiply the loaves and the fishes, after he's seen Jesus walk on the water like God, after he has witnessed the transfiguration where Jesus revealed his glory to Moses and Elijah as Yahweh. Now he would have been able to understand. Now Matthew's readers 
could understand why it should be a problem for Jesus to pay the temple tax. Jesus is not just another subject in the kingdom of heaven. He's the Christ. In fact, He's more than the Christ. He's God's Son. As it says in John 1.14, when Jesus was born, the Word became flesh and dwelt, or actually more literally, He tabernacled among us. The temple system, it's for Him. So why should He pay the temple tax? For God to require this of Jesus, that would be like Caesar taxing his own family. It doesn't make sense. So that's the correction here. Peter tells the tax collectors, yes, Jesus pays the tax because he thinks the tax applies to Jesus. And Jesus gently corrects Peter by saying, actually, the tax doesn't apply to me. He doesn't really address the legality of the tax one way or the other. He just sidesteps the issue entirely and he says, even if it didn't, or even if it did apply, it still wouldn't apply to me. Jesus is above the system. The system revolves around him. He's the Lord of the, just as he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he's also the Lord of the temple. So contrary to what Peter thinks, Jesus doesn't have to pay the tax. But he still will. And he explains why in verse 27. When he says, However, to give no offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. And so after correcting Peter by demonstrating that he doesn't have to pay the tax, he then moves on and makes a concession by saying that he will pay the tax. Now we should probably note at this point that it isn't Jesus exactly who pays the tax, right? After all, he tells Peter to go and catch a fish and he explains that the fish is going to have a shekel in his mouth. That's enough to pay the tax for both Peter and Jesus. Jesus tells Peter to pay the tax with that. So it's not as if Jesus is paying this tax out of his own pocket, is he? It's God actually who's doing it for him. He's paying the tax for Jesus to this miraculous provision of money, and that's important. Jesus really shouldn't pay it. It would be inappropriate, in a sense, it would be inappropriate for God's Son to pay this tax. But that being said, Jesus is still willing to play along. And he explains why at the beginning of verse 27. He says, but not to give offense. And then he tells Peter how to go and get the coin. That's the reason why Jesus pays the tax, even though he's not obligated. It's so that he, could, he would not create an offense. He doesn't want his refusal to pay the tax to be a stumbling block. Again, perhaps this is later in Jesus' ministry. Personally, I think it really has to take place earlier, back when Jesus is offering the kingdom to Israel, but he doesn't want this to be a stumbling block to that. Perhaps he means that he doesn't want them to be offended by Peter's rash response, like, you know, Peter committed Jesus to pay the tax, so maybe Jesus doesn't want to create offense by reneging on that agreement. More than likely, though, Jesus doesn't want to give the impression that he doesn't honor God's commands. That's the offense that he's trying to avoid. Again, that's what people would have been saying, what they would have been saying about Jesus. People heard his position on things like Sabbath. They saw his acceptance of men like Matthew, Levi. And they would have heard about his disagreement with the Pharisee system. And they would have said, in response to all of that, Jesus isn't concerned about the law. Jesus isn't concerned about righteousness. And, and this wasn't true at all. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, right? That's what he said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill. So he stood against some of the, demand, the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees, but that wasn't because he was you know, demanding a lower standard of righteousness. If anything, he was demanding a higher one. Again, that's what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that the righteousness that he demanded exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that if a person didn't meet that, then they wouldn't enter into the kingdom of heaven. But this is how his actions were often interpreted. People thought, because he didn't follow in the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees, that he wasn't serious about righteousness because he didn't affirm their traditions. That's actually pretty typical of religious people. They can have a lot of traditions that they've developed over the years, and then they'll assume that if you don't hold to those positions, and you're not serious about righteousness. And Jesus knows this, and he doesn't want that wrong perception to unnecessarily cloud the issue. So even though he isn't bound to pay the tax... He still agrees to pay it. 
so as not to create offense, so as not to confuse the issue by making people think he's not concerned about righteousness. Now think about the humility in that response. Jesus is the Son of God, meaning that the temple is his Father's house. So he's exempt from that system. In fact, if anything, the taxes collected should be paid to him. The system should really exalt Jesus. It should recognize and honor Him. And Jesus is worthy of that. As we saw in the Transfiguration, He is rightly an object of worship. The praise, the glory, the adoration that is due to God the Father, which the temple system celebrates, that should be directed as Jesus as well, since He's God's Son. So He should be recognized and honored and exalted But instead, when the time comes to pay the tax, what does he do? Does he demand recognition? Does he assert his right to be worshipped? I mean, do you understand? Does he demand his rightful place, his rightful place of honor by refusing to submit to this tax as, as if he were some mere commoner, as if he were just another face in the crowd no different from you or me? Now, what does he do? He pays the tax. He deserves, again, he deserves to be recognized and worshipped. But instead, he pays the tax. And he acts like he isn't anything special. Like he is just another face in the crowd. You understand? That's not fair. That's not what Jesus deserves, but he does it. And why does he do that? He, he does it because he doesn't want to create an offense. He does it because he doesn't want to exercise the exercise of his rights to cause someone else to stumble on their way into the kingdom. He doesn't want to make it more difficult for them to enter in. He's more concerned that others have the opportunity to repent and be saved than he is about even his own glory in this instance. And so he surrenders that right. And he lays down what is rightfully his for their benefit. Again, I hope you understand this. He's doing more. He's doing more than just turning down recognition. He's actually turning down what he's owed. He's suffering loss for the sake of others. Love, that is why Jesus does this. He considers others as more important than himself. And so, even though he doesn't deserve what's really, this is really humiliation, even though he doesn't deserve the humiliation of paying the temple tax, and that's what this is for Jesus, it's an indignity for the Son of God to pay this. This tax is degrading. But Jesus does it anyways. And he does it because in accepting that indignity, he prevents a stumbling block from being put in front front of the people of Israel. Again, think about that. Whose fault would it be if Israel couldn't accept Jesus' messianic position? Is it Jesus' fault that they wouldn't be able to accept that? Absolutely not, right? I mean, he was providing them with every sign, wonder, and teaching possible to demonstrate who he really was. I mean, if Israel can't accept Jesus' glorified position, like if he says here, I'm not going to pay the tax, and then they stumble over that, that's really their problem, isn't it? They're too slow. They're too stubborn. They're too hard-hearted to acknowledge the obvious. Their weakness is really their fault. They're to blame for it. But that doesn't matter to Jesus. Their sin may be the reason for this stumbling block, but Jesus defers nonetheless. He experiences experiences indignity when He doesn't deserve it so that they might not stumble when they do deserve it. That's love. To suffer because of someone else's weakness and sin so that they might receive the benefit. 
That's love. And it's that kind of love that Jesus expects of his disciples as well. It's not just something that he practices. It's something he expects of his disciples as well. Understand, context is everything in Matthew. Again, he'll, he'll intentionally take material out of its chronological order and then rearrange it along certain themes in order to place it against various backgrounds to make a point. Now, whether or not Matthew's doing that with this particular event or not, the point is still the same. This event occurs in a section of Matthew that's primarily concerned not with Christology, but discipleship. And that should help us understand the reason for its inclusion in this gospel. No other gospel writer, by the way, includes this event. Only Matthew does, and he includes it because Jesus' response here teaches a very important example for his disciples to follow. In other words, there's, there's a Christological element to this story. We learn something of Jesus' authority with this response, but that's not the point. The point is what Jesus does with that authority. He doesn't exercise it. He lays it down for the sake of these tax collectors. And in doing that, he's setting an example for Peter and for the rest of the disciples to follow about how they should handle these types of situations. That's the point here. It's not the, not the Christological element of this story so much as the practical one. How Jesus' response here is supposed to be applied. And for Matthew's audience, that's going to have a different connotation than what's happening here with Jesus. I mean, so Jesus is exempt from the temple tax, but what does that have to do with the rest of the disciples, right? I mean, God provides payment for Peter too here, but I don't think we can necessarily take away from that that Peter's also exempt from the tax. Jesus says the tax doesn't apply to him, not because the tax isn't binding, but because he personally is exempt. And the implication is that Jesus is only excused because of the extraordinary circumstances that apply specifically to him. He's not abolishing the tax. He's not even questioning its legality. He's claiming an exemption based on his status as God's son. Obviously, that doesn't apply to everyone, right? There are presumably people who are citizens of the kingdom who don't share Jesus' status as a son, at least not in the same way that he does. They would still have to pay the tax. That would apparently include someone like Peter, the disciple. They're citizens in the kingdom. Now, perhaps you could argue that they too are exempt based on some other passages, passages like Matthew 19, 28, when Jesus says that they'll one day rule uh, over Israel from 12 uh, thrones. Maybe that's what, why God provides for Peter here as well, because Peter also occupies a special place in God's kingdom as one of Jesus' apostles. But even still, that would be a pretty unique exemption. Not everyone in the church is going to hold the same position of authority as Jesus' apostles. So one would think that at the very least, this tax still does apply for the rest of Jesus' followers, at, at least at this particular stage in his ministry. The same could not be said, however, about Matthew's readers, who are receiving this account after Jesus' crucifixion and before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Matthew addresses this temple tax. Think about this. He addresses this temple tax at a point in time that would have made this lesson incredibly relevant to his readers. Again, I don't think we think a lot about this. The temple tax, none of us, the temple doesn't exist today for us to pay a tax to. But understand, Matthew's writing to Jewish Christians, and he's writing to them before the destruction of the temple. That would have made this issue very relevant. So he's writing to them at a time when the, the tax would have still been taken. These Jewish believers, believers would have had to decide whether or not they should pay a tax like this one. And he's writing to them after Jesus' death on the cross. Meaning that he's writing to them after the Mosaic Law has been fulfilled, completed, replaced by the New Covenant. So these are Jews who are no longer bound by the law. These are Jews who understand that the former temple system is obsolete. They understand that they're not obligated to do things like pay this tax. And not because they're exempt in the same way that Jesus is, but because the system no longer applies. It's over. So should they pay the tax? When their Jewish brethren come around, asking them for the two drachma tax to send to Jerusalem. What should they do? After all, they're no longer required to pay it, right? Because Jesus put an end to that system on the cross. So should they refuse? 
Should they make a point by asserting their rights and declare their freedom from the law? No, Matthew indicates they should pay the tax. But why? I mean, why, why should they give up two days' wages? Think about it. Two days' wages for nothing. And Matthew would answer, well, because it's not for nothing. It helps prevent offense. It demonstrates to their Jewish brothers that they're, that they're not unconcerned for righteousness. It keeps them from misinterpreting the gospel. But that's not fair, you can think they would say. No, it isn't fair. It's grace. And it's love. And according to the New Testament, this is the point of freedom from the law. The point isn't that Christians now get to do whatever they want because all their sin has been punished in Jesus. No, the point is that through Christ, they are now free from the restrictions of that former system so that they may in every way serve others for the magnification of Christ's gospel. As Paul says in Galatians 5, 13-14, For you are called a freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, the point of our freedom is love. We are free of the law's restrictions so that we might love other people and to love them in particularly by removing any potential stumbling block necessary for them to hear and understand the gospel with great clarity. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, let me read this. I want to read a couple passages from Paul here where he talks about this. Listen to this. This is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them and its blessings. Again, that's how Paul interpreted his freedom. He says as well in 1 Corinthians 10, 31-33, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. So again, we're free from the law's restrictions, not its demands per se, Make that clear. Not free from its demands per se, but from its regulations, its stipulations. And we are free not so that we can serve ourselves, but so that we can serve others. And Paul, as Paul says, we are free from all. But we are free from all that we might make ourselves a servant to all, and so might win more of them. So what should we take away from this passage? Well, I think there's two core lessons here. And the first one is this. Lesson number one, every Christian must be willing to remove any known stumbling block from their life. Every Christian must be willing to remove any known stumbling block from their life. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this point today because we're going to deal with it pretty extensively over the next couple of weeks. So, you know, this passage really kind of sets up an extended discussion on stumbling blocks that's going to occur in chapter 18. And so we'll more or less get into that discussion then. But suffice to save the points here as well. Jesus expects His disciples to be aware of how their actions affect other people. And not just in terms of direct sin, like not just in terms of words or deeds that they've done intentionally, like actively malicious sin. No, He expects them to be aware of how their actions may indirectly affect others as well. It's possible to harm someone spiritually without even intending it, just by being unaware of how your actions can affect other people. Even well-intended actions, they can be perceived wrongly in the right context, and if a person's relationship with God can be damaged, it can be damaged from the reckless actions of another Christian, just by them not taking the time to think about how their actions affect others. Jesus expects His disciples 
to take the time to be considerate of this possibility. He expects them to be conscientious about their faith. He expects them to think through how their actions can skew other people's perceptions of God, even the ones that they are free to take, even the actions that are okay for them to do. And then he expects them to avoid any such action, any action that's going to skew that that perception of God, that's going to create a stumbling block in another person's faith. That's what he's modeling here. Again, the tax is, is, he's not required to pay it. But he pays it anyway, so as not to create a misconception. That's what he's modeling here, and it's what he expects of the rest of his disciples as well. You see this attitude modeled throughout the New Testament. In, in Acts 15, for instance, when the Jerusalem Council gathers to determine whether or not Gentiles should be bound to adhere to the law, it's wholeheartedly agreed that the answer is no. But they still ask the Gentiles, quote, to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been stangled, strangled and from blood. And why did they ask this? James answers in Acts 15.21, he says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So the Gentiles are accepted into God's kingdom, apart from adherence to the Mosaic law, but they're still asked to refrain from some of the things outlined in that law. In large part, it would seem, because it would be a stumbling block to the Jews otherwise. Paul encourages similar thinking in places like 1 Corinthians 8 in Romans 14, for example, regarding food sacrificed to idols, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. If you would, go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. Regarding food sacrificed to idols, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are Uh, There may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul essentially says, he says, look, I, I know that you know that there's no such thing as other gods. And that in eating this meat, you're neither honoring another god, nor are you intending to. So in that sense, it's fine. I get it. You're not sinning when you eat the meat. I get it. However, he says, starting in verse 7, not all possess this knowledge. Not everyone understands this point as well as you, Paul says. And then he goes on to explain how to continue to eat this meat in front of those who think it is a sin will cause them to stumble and fall into sin. He then concludes in verse 13 saying, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul instructs the Corinthians to avoid these kinds of stumbling blocks for the sake of their brothers. And in chapter 10, by the way, he extends that to unbelievers as well. He tells the Corinthians to avoid any stumbling blocks not just before other believers, but before unbelievers as well, so that those stumbling blocks don't get in the way of their understanding of the gospel. This is the standard practice by Jesus' disciples. And He expects you to adhere to this standard as well. In fact, it's more than an expectation. We should make that clear. This is, he didn't just expect you to do this. It's more than an expectation. As we'll see in greater detail over the next few weeks, this is a demand. Jesus demands that his disciples practice this kind of conscientious faith. And to be clear, I think, I think we should also understand that this includes more than just the exercise of our liberties. That's the particular subject in places like Acts 15 and 1 Corinthians 8. But I think it's more than fair to say that, that this principle goes beyond this point as well. In a sense, taking the spiritual well-being of others into consideration in the exercise of liberties, that's an extreme. When we do that, we're taking into consideration actions that are entirely permissible, things that we're allowed to do that, in a sense, are righteous, and considering how that may damage someone else's faith. Well, if we're to avoid stumbling blocks at that level, even when we're talking about things that aren't necessarily sin, Well, the most definitely we need to consider how the actual sin that we commit in our lives can cause others to stumble as well and remove those things from our lives also. I mean, that's basically assumed. Of course, we need to avoid those sins that are going to cause others to stumble. And Jesus will address that more directly next week. 
But we can't forget this point. I need, I, need to, I need to think not only of how my liberties can affect others and remove that stumbling block, but also my actual sins as well. The only thing that should be offensive about you, either to your brothers or to the world, should be the gospel. Jesus' authority, God's demand for repentance from the heart, the need for grace, the cross, these are things that Jesus would not back down on. He would surrender everything else if necessary, but not these. He would stand his ground on these. He would suffer and die before he backed down on these points. He would offend people on these points, and he did, often. The reason why he was killed was because these concepts were offensive, and he would not back down on them. And the reason he wouldn't back down on those is because those points are essential to the gospel. They are non-negotiable. They are necessary to the extent that if you surrender any one of them, you've lost the gospel. Again, the goal is salvation. And Jesus would surrender whatever is necessary to help a person repent. Obviously, that can't include aspects that are essential to the gospel. So don't misunderstand me when I'm saying all this. My point here is not to say, be as unoffensive as possible. The point, rather, is to be offensive but in the right ways and on the right things. And that means that if all possible, the only thing that should be a stumbling block to those around you is the actual message of salvation itself. And again, we'll explore this in greater detail next week, but this point is in seed form here as well. You must remove any known stumbling block from your life. I think the greater lesson though, the one that we as Christians need to keep repeating to ourselves and repeating often is the second one. And that lesson is this. Lesson number two, every Christian must surrender their rights for the sake of the gospel. That's what Jesus expects of you. He expects you to surrender your rights for the advancement of His kingdom. Remember, this stumbling block that Jesus removes from these tax collectors, it's not a sin. Again, Jesus was not obligated to pay the tax. So if the tax collectors stumbled over his refusal to pay, they wouldn't be stumbling over some sin on Jesus' part. No, he was exempt from the tax. He didn't have to pay it. He was fully in his rights to tell them, no, Peter was mistaken. I don't have to pay this. But he paid anyways. He didn't have to pay. And yet he gave up his privilege. He gave up his right for the sake of whoever was watching so as not to give them offense. And I want you to understand the significance of this. Jesus is not giving up His right. He's not just surrendering His privilege to those who are worthy of this kind of sacrifice and love. Again, if the tax collectors or anyone else in Israel can't accept the claim that Jesus is making, that's not His fault. It's theirs. It's because of their weakness. It's because of their stubbornness, even their sin. And yet Jesus surrenders his right anyways. It doesn't matter what the reason is for their inability to accept Jesus. All that matters is that Jesus' response would be a stumbling block to them. And Jesus doesn't want that. It doesn't matter who it is or what the real cause is for their stumbling. Jesus doesn't want to contribute in any way to their stumbling, even inadvertently. And so he surrenders his right. Even though their weakness is their problem, Jesus accepts the burden of that. He puts that on himself and he surrenders his right for them. And he demands the exact same level of sacrifice the exact same level of sacrifice from every single one of you. Paul points out as much at the conclusion of his discussion of, on Christian liberties in, in Romans 14. If you would, please turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. In Romans 14, Paul goes into great detail in explaining how We as Christians should exercise our liberties in light of the weaknesses of others. And as he concludes that discussion, he writes in Romans 15, 1-3, look here. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And stop right there. Did you hear that? The strong, he says, the strong 
That's the mature brother or sister in Christ. They have an obligation. Meaning, it's not a suggestion. Paul's not saying, well, if you really want to go the extra mile, then you can do this. No, it's a requirement. What he's saying here is not super special righteousness. It's the minimum threshold. Do you hear me? It's an obligation for the mature Christian. They must do this. They have an obligation, he says, to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Again, understand what he's saying. The strong are not allowed. They are not allowed. Not allowed to get frustrated with the weak one for being weak. They're not to react to their weakness by saying, man, what's their problem? I mean, they're so stupid, there's no way I'm going to change my actions because of their ignorance. No, he says they're obligated to bear with those failings and not to please themselves. Think about this. What's your attitude towards weaker Christians who don't know as much as you? Who aren't as mature as you? Do you get frustrated with them? Do you write them off, tell them to grow up, and then go about your business expecting them to rise to you? If so, you're the immature one. You're the one not meeting your obligation. You're the one in sin. Now look at how Paul continues. Why should we live like this? Why should the mature condescend to the weak? Surrender what is rightfully theirs because of the immaturity of another. He explains in verses 2-3, to saying, that each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Look at what he says there. You do this, Paul says, because that's what Jesus did for you. Jesus didn't please himself. He didn't demand sinners give him what he was owed. No, he bore the burden of their sin. He took the consequences of their sin on himself, absorbed all of that, and he did that so that they might live. And he did that not only on the cross, but even throughout his life through things like this temple tax. And in doing this, he's not only saved you, Christian, but he set an example for you to follow as well. Jesus demands that you set aside all your so-called rights that you would, in the words of Paul, make yourself a slave to all that you might win more of them. And he demands this because this is what he did for you. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says in Philippians 2, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus demands of you. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says. That's what Jesus wants of you. And he demands it because this is what he did for you. You understand? He's only asking you to have the same compassion, the same love, the same consideration that he demonstrates to you. The same compassion that you're asking of him. I hope you can understand the importance of this. What we're hitting at here actually strikes at the very core of Christianity. If you want to understand the Christian ethic and how we live, this is at the very basis of it. Selfless love, gracious compassion. And I mean that in the true sense of the word. Undeserved compassion. This is what our faith is about. That's what Christ is about. Meaning that if you can't live this way, If you can't demonstrate this kind of grace towards other people, you have no business, absolutely no business, calling yourself a Christian. I mean, whatever you do, don't you dare call yourself by Christ's name and then refuse to love in the way that He loved. It's hypocrisy, it's sin, and it's a very serious stumbling block to the world. And if you think I'm exaggerating when I say this, wait until next week. For that matter, wait until we get to the end of Matthew 18. Jesus isn't going to mince words. 
I mean, he's going to say that the one who doesn't love this way, the one who causes one of his little ones to stumble because they refuse to bear their weaknesses and remove any offense in their life, he says it's better for that person to have a millstone fastened around their neck and then tossed into the sea. He's very serious about this. Understand, this is non-negotiable for us. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you must do this. It's an obligation. It's an obligation to the degree that if you refuse to love in this way, then you very well may not be a Christian. Keep this in mind when we get to church discipline in verse 15. Jesus Jesus plops that whole discussion of church discipline down right in between a discussion of stumbling blocks on the one hand and and of forgiveness on the other. And I don't think that's coincidental. I think those are the primary sins that he has in mind when he's talking about excommunication. You can't call yourself by Christ's name and then refuse to love in the way that he loved. Whatever doctrine you may have going for you, it's absolutely worthless if you're not being conformed into his likeness. It's all head knowledge and hypocrisy. And you can expect that when you cry out to Jesus on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, He will say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, if you do not love this way. So how do you think you're doing here? Personally, I think a lot of us have a lot of repenting to do. Again, this is not normal for us. I don't, and I don't just mean that in the sense that we're all sinners. I mean, culturally, this is a very unusual way for us to think. We exalt the idea of exercising our personal rights and freedoms. Jesus says, if necessary, give them all away. So I don't think too many Christians probably do this very often. And sadly, I don't even think we bat an eye about it most of the time. It's normal for us. It's normal for us to live this way, but normal's bad. Normal is dangerous. And we need to be different. We need to be able to display radical love, sacrificial love to the world. After all, this is how Jesus said that we, they'd, uh, the world would know that we're His disciples, right? By whether or not we have love for one another. Sadly, I don't think that's true for a lot of the church. Many times we're known for our divisiveness. We're known for being petty. We're known for talking a good game, but having very little to back it up in the quality of our lives. We're known for the demands that we make, not for the privileges that we surrender. And that's wrong. We must get past this idea that I'll love other people when it's convenient. Or I shouldn't have to change for anyone else. That's not Christian. That's the exact opposite of Christ-likeness. So let's close today by praying that we'd be different. Let's ask that God would make us unique, that He'd help us to stand apart from our culture by practicing truly sacrificial love towards one another. Can we do that? Let's pray.